You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast for our 20th episode and for our last episode of 2020, thank God we've all had enough of this year, is Xander Snyder. He's the vice president of analysis at Perch Perspectives. Uh, Xander also has his own podcast. It's called Reconsider. You can find out more about it on reconsidermedia.com. In it, we talk about uh, the geopolitics of 2020, and we look forward a little bit and start brainstorming what we think some major risks on the horizon might be for 2021. Uh, Thanks so much, Xander, for coming on. Thank you, listeners, so much for being with us on this journey. Uh, Also, thank you to so many of you who have either left reviews on the podcast or ratings on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. We've gone from something like 13 ratings to 52 ratings just in the last week and a half, and that's really awesome, but you've got my expectations up. So if you haven't rated the podcast, please consider doing so. If you haven't shared the podcast with friends or anybody you think would be interested in what's going on in the world politically today, please share them with us. Otherwise, you can write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you just want to chat or if you want to talk about what Perch Perspectives can do for your business. I read everything and I reply to just about everything too. So take care of each other. Have Merry Christmases, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate out there. Please, for the love of all that is good and holy, wear some masks if you're going outside. And take care. We'll see you out there. We'll see you in 2021. Happy New Year. All right, Xander, I've got a beer. I hope you've got a beer. I can't do this without a beer now. I have a glass of Cabernet Sauvignon. Does that count? uh yeah that does that's that's way classier than my Sapporo light over here but <laughs> oh don't knock on the Sapporo I'm a fan of Sapporo yeah but it's it's a Sapporo light so I'm basically mm. you know whatever it's I like it it's it's good but I get made fun of a lot by my wife for it anyway <laughs> Xander I know we're gonna struggle a lot in this podcast because we're gonna look back at what happened in 2020 and look ahead to you know top developments in 2021 and you know not a lot happened this year you know it was pretty pretty boring wouldn't you say even killed pretty neutral year yeah, I mean, you know, everything completely as we expected it would be. Um, no, it, it was a crazy year. And I think that, you know, obviously we're going to get to COVID and stuff like that. But when I think back and I, I try to think about the full scope of the year, I mean, I think we forget it, it almost started with a U.S.-Iran war. You remember that? I remember you were looking at that pretty closely around the time, right, with Soleimani? Sure do. I, I bet most people who are either angry or happy about Soleimani being killed a year ago don't even remember who he is right now. Well, remind us, who was Soleimani, Xander? He was the head of the Quds Forces, which was the expeditionary force of the IRGC, which is kind of like already the elite class military in Iran. So the elite within the elite that are sent to fight the foreign wars on behalf of the Islamic Republic. Yeah, and I I think looking forward, I mean, that's probably going to be one of the biggest things that changes because biden is already on record saying that he wants to go back into the iran nuclear deal and um it's it's pretty hard to to exaggerate what a big sea change that is in the balance of power in the middle east because when the united states is you know maximum pressure on the iranian regime and taking out irgc leaders and assassinating iranians i mean it, it lends a whole different kind of balance of power to the region whereas if the biden administration is going to have to re-engage um, with the Iranian government, um, you know, you can already see the Saudis are worried about this. The Israelis are probably worried about this. The Turks might even be worried about it. I think it's going to be a very different year ahead under Biden, at least. Yeah, for sure. 
I think Turkey, uh, just as a general conversation point, is something else we should talk about because uh, while two years ago when we were both at GPF, I remember you know forecast call when we were kind of figuring out the 2019 forecast, the end of 2018, and the uh, Eastern Med, Eastern Mediterranean came up and we kind of debated how serious of a conflict zone we thought that was going to be in the next couple of years, and clearly that that entire situation has uh, deteriorated. So I think that's going to be uh, another element that uh, between Turkey and all of the natural gas finds in the Eastern Mediterranean going to further complicate the already complicated uh, geopolitics of the Middle East. Yeah. And I mean, there's so much that happened even just this year, and it's not just the gas. I mean, I mean, Turkey is on the ground in Libya, and it's, mm. it's actually been pretty incredible to watch Libya basically take forward steps towards resolution in the last couple months. I mean, for most of this year, it looked like that was going to be a, an interminable civil war proxy conflict, but they've started pumping oil again. And it seems like there's at least some kind of movement towards a ceasefire on the ground there between the Turkish-backed side and the sort of Russian, Egyptian, even French-backed side. Um, but just to say that that's another area where Turkey is obviously involved. And then, you know, earlier this summer, um, there was a moment where I, I think it was with France. I think there was a yeah. France, there was a French frigate or something where it, like Turkish radar like actually locked onto their ships at one point because the French were trying to to um, enforce a blockade of weapons into Libya. So it's it's just a lot of stuff there. Yeah, the the relationship between France and Turkey has always been, from a historical perspective, an interesting one to, for me because I I've kind of like really dug into the Ottoman Empire's past, and at one point when they had immediate enemies on their western borders um so it would be in eastern europe they would sometimes actually ally with france because france was so far away that they could never directly challenge the ottoman uh, empire's interests but they would sometimes have common adversaries that kind of sat in the middle um but now with france essentially trying to be the military arm of the eu eu it it makes sense that 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 um that confrontation happened between the two yeah, I, th I think the one thing that, and I wonder if it's going to constrain Turkey in the year ahead, it almost seems like, as we say back on the farm in Georgia, that Turkey got too big for its britches. <laughs> uh, you know, th they just bit off more than they could chew, and they actually had a nice success there in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict earlier this year. Um, but the Biden administration incoming is going to be a lot more hostile, I think, to Erdogan than the Trump administration was. And I think you can already see the Erdogan government trying to play nicer. I mean, they got rid of the crazy monetary policy and their crazy interest rates policy. Um, shortly after Biden became president, suddenly there was an ambassador to Israel again. They'd held off on that for years. Um, I'm kind of wondering if we're going to get a nicer facing Turkey, at least towards the United States, because they realize, you know, their position is not secure on the ground in Syria. They want to keep the gains that Azerbaijan got in the, in the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. It just, it just feels like there's a lot on their plate and they're going to have to prioritize rather than basically lashing out in all directions, which is how I would describe their, their geopolitical strategy this year. Yeah, they've been trying to build that depth as, um, oh, what was his name? I think it was Kavusolu wrote a book in like 2001 about the the contemporary Turkey's geopolitical like strategy, right? And unfortunately, no editions of this book exist in English, I remember, because I, I looked for it. But there are like some summaries here and there. And it's, it was just interesting, interesting because already 20 years ago, um, 
thought leaders in Turkey were talking about reestablishing depth, which is something they had when they controlled lots of territory surrounding the modern day Anatolia. Um, so it, it does seem like they're kind of going in that direction, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. But um, if we're also thinking about, you know, kind of stuff that happened in the world before COVID, mm-hmm. I feel like the other big geopolitical development um, of 2020 was the U.S.-China phase one trade deal. I mean, that was also back in January and February. It almost seemed like not that there was going to be any overall agreement between the U.S. and China. I think conflict there was pretty well locked into place. But when you think about where the U.S. and China were in January and where they've come since then, with the U.S. you know blaming China for the COVID-19 pandemic, whether rightfully or wrongfully, we can go into that if you want, but you know certainly blame them really stopped cooperating with them, talking with them to the point that, you know, these huge restrictions on Huawei forcing or even thinking about forcing Chinese companies from delisting on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, blacklisting tens, if not hundreds of Chinese companies for their alleged relations to the People's Liberation Army. Uh, There's been a serious degradation, I think, in U.S.-China relations. And I think that it's it's actually the one area where I expect the tactics under the Biden administration to change, but I'm really, really pessimistic about the future of U.S.-China relations. I don't know if you feel this way, Xander, but I feel like one of the only things I hear people in the American foreign policy establishment agreeing about on both sides are that China is bad. And you know, I've been a, a couple times on this podcast, I've, I've tried to to infuse a little bit of nuance there and point out, yes, there are national security threats from China, but China is not this boogeyman that everybody's making it out to be. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the Biden administration is really not in a material way going to look at China any differently, really, than the Trump administration. Do you think that's true? That is a good question. I don't know. I, th- I think there is building, there is growing consensus. And maybe in 2017, if you had asked uh, some folks on the left in the U.S., you know, the immediate re- response would have been anything that isn't what Trump is saying. So Trump was anti-China, and so maybe they would be pro-China. But um, it do- China does pose lots of uh, serious challenges to the United States and the world order that it's built over the last 30 years. So, no, I don't feel particularly optimistic about it. I may even be more on the boogeyman side than you are. Uh, in part because of what they're doing in Xinjiang, and they're, they've just shown the whole world how willing they are to commit, I mean, I don't know if you call it atrocities at this point, because the, the information coming through on and people actually being killed is kind of few and far between, but it is there. Um, but they're locking up millions of people to try to brainwash them. Like that, that, is, that is a scary form of government for me, and I say that with all the nuance required, recognizing that the U.S. government has not always been a very good government either in terms of like uh, acting ethically. But if you get into the world of security challenges right now, I, I would say it seems more circumscribed. Like there are those areas in, in the Pacific that, I mean, China's already there. So I feel like, you know, as much as, as their uh, foreign policy administration will, will say we won't allow for a fait accompli, they're, they're the ones accomplishing the fait accomplis. They're, they're already there. So that, that will become challenging. And, and as you've talked about before, the, the biggest uh, wrench in that gear really remains to be Taiwan. Yeah, but I I just think we're so far away from that. I mean, I agree that we need to be thinking through that, but I just think we're so far away from that being the big issue. And I I mean, 
we should really delve into the Xinjiang stuff a little bit here and talk about Let's it a little it. more in depth. But one one thing I kind of want to bring up was um, so I, I just looked at the the COVID relief package that passed, I think, the House earlier today, um, and <laughs> I'm going to read the first a, a section here from you. It's it's over a five thousand page bill. Okay, here, here's one of the uh, one of the sections. This is section three forty two. Statement of policy regarding the succession or reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. Finding. <laughs> Congress finds the following. Tibetan Buddhism is practiced in many countries, including Bhutan, India, Mongolia. Guys, this is the COVID rescue package. <laughs> COVID rescue. Why are we talking about the Dalai Lama? Like, this is great. I'm glad we want to talk about Tibet. This is a major geopolitical issue. But this is what I mean about the boogeyman stuff. Like, how mm-hmm. is a competent, functioning democracy suffering from a global pandemic this this fiscal stimulus bill that we've all been waiting on, that we all know needs to get done, and we're making policy on the Dalai Lama, like like what are we like I like there's something fundamentally broken there, and it tells me that something's happening in the U.S. blaming China for all this stuff that is just completely out of proportion. Now, to your point though about Xinjiang, yes, th- that is the rejoinder, and I still and I I've heard some pro China. I've talked to some pro China analysts. I've talked to some people in China. They they try to explain it to me. It's the one part of China's behavior that I can't wrap my head around. I cannot put myself in their shoes and explain it. I mean, folks will tell you, oh, you know, um, the United States was hit on nine eleven by Islamist terrorists. Um, you know, the Uyghurs have relations to Islamist terrorism, and there's the Arumqi riots and all this all this other stuff. Um, but it's just really hard for me to understand what the what the Chinese government is doing there and not to judge them horribly for what they're doing there. But again, Xander, that's not what people are talking about when they're talking about China. They're not sanctioning SMIC because of Xinjiang. They're doing that because of their bottom lines or because they want China to open up their markets or because of their supply chains. I hate this this two-faced thing where folks are willing to denigrate China for what's going on in Xinjiang and then claim that their positions or all the things that they're supporting uh, are, are part of that resistance to China. If we really think that China is doing what people are accusing it of in Xinjiang, great, go at them, isolate them, use the dollar, use whatever you want to do, go at them like 100%. That's not what's happening. And so any, I, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. I'm just saying that it's a little more complicated and that if we really do think that what's happening in Xinjiang is as bad as some of the reports are sounding, uh, we could be doing a lot more to put pressure on China to stop that specific behavior rather than trying to wrap that into a conversation about tariffs and supply chains, which is yeah. it's important, but it's a completely different topic. Well, maybe what we need to do is have another episode where we just dive into that issue, honestly, because I'm... It's something I'm very interested in. It's something that I find very hard to wrap my head around as well. And I, it's it's just the one thing. Uh, well, it's not the one thing. It is one thing of perhaps several things that China's doing that I just find completely, utterly, uh, ethically unjustifiable, um, and utterly useless to do anything about because, you know, it's all the way over there. And that that uh, I don't know, man. That says something about the na- like human nature as a whole that we don't need to get into on this particular episode about geopolitics. And if we are going to pivot back to COVID, and I'll start from the fiscal fiscal stimulus bill that passed, yeah, which... Away. Because, I mean, that is the big development of 2020. I think we'll look back and this will be... I wonder what history will call this year, but it'll be about COVID. It will. Um, 
Eric has as a Eric, uh, my my colleague at Reconsider, has been saying that in the future, when historians focus on 2020, there there will be uh, PhD students who do their theses not on the year but on the specific month of 2020. Yeah, so Eric thinks that every month will be a PhD dissertation at least because so much has happened. And an idea that I've been toying with recently, haven't even really talked about it much publicly, um, is the idea that, that something has fundamentally changed about the GOP in America. And I say this in a very nonpartisan way. I say it as an observer of what's going on. The GOP, the Republican Party, has traditionally been the party of conservatism. And as someone who, I mean, a lot of my friends would identify me as like, a traditional quote unquote liberal in some of my personal policies. And um, I think I'm far more conservative than that personally, but I, I value conservatism greatly as an idea in a society, because I do think when you have rapid change too quickly, you often get periods of great bloodshed and violence. And I'm generally against that. Um, but while the GOP has historically been the conservative party, it seems like in the last couple of months, at least they have been pushing for things, whether or not you would call them policies, that are pretty radical. I mean, everything that's 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 been going on around trying to overturn the election, and I know that that's a partisan issue, but more and more, it seems like the Republican Party is advocating for greater change more rapidly than the Democratic Party is. And I, I wonder if that means that some sort of major change is coming to the GOP in the future. Yeah, I would say, I'm not sure that it's just the Republican Party. And I say that because I think something is happening in American politics where political parties are almost becoming extensions of personal identity rather than statements about your political positions about something. And when you say now that you're a Democrat, it's supposed to signal something not just about the positions you want the government to take, but it says something about you know the ethical positions that you hold. And we're talking about political parties. It's not really supposed to be that way, or at least I don't. I don't think of it that way. I'm a registered independent for that reason. I've never really ascribed to any party affiliation. The other part of this, also though, is that on both sides, I mean, what it traditionally meant to be a Democrat or a Republican in terms of positions, it's not necessarily true anymore. I mean, to your point, um, you know, the Republicans used to be the party of free trade and fiscal conservatism and that's all gone. I mean, look at the way that the deficit, the budget deficit has ballooned under the Trump administration. Trump has gone total protectionist and has taken large factions of the Republican Party along with him. Ditto on the Democratic side. I mean, the Democratic side, it, it, the, the positions that they used to hold are not always the positions that they want to do going forward. And I think Biden being chosen as the nominee and eventually as the president kind of tells you that. He was the compromise candidate. He was the one who could kind of take from from all of the different buckets and put them together. But there's no, I, I wouldn't say that Biden stands for any kind of overall policy position. He was anti-Trump. Uh, and that was that was basically about all he was. I mean, he was able to sort of get back some of those votes that the Democratic Party um, lost to Trump. But we're still talking about style and aesthetics, not anything about positions in a real way. Do you think that's fair? Or do you think I'm giving, that I'm, I'm not being hard enough on the Republican Party? Hmm. Well, I think it's it's fair to have reservations about what p particular policies uh, pr uh, presidential candidates stand for, because at the end of the day, they can say whatever they want. When they get into office, they usually end up doing different or slightly different things. Although, coincidentally, Trump didn't. He, he accomplished a lot of what he said he was going to. Um, mm -hmm. 
But more often than not, it's easier to just lie on the campaign and do whatever you want when you're in office. Well, he, he didn't accomplish the one thing I wanted him to accomplish, which was the massive infrastructure spend. I'd like that was the one thing I was rooting for, and we couldn't get yeah. that. I I don't. I do think that that great changes are happening in both political parties. Absolutely, I don't disagree about that. The only reason I pointed out the the GOP in particular is because it seems like the thing that more often than not, I would say like the average Republican, like someone who's not that politically engaged, but who's voted Republican all his life, like some people in my family, for example, from North Carolina, they, they're just not going to not vote Republican because it's just what they've done. It's kind of who they are. Um, the thing that the Republican Party has stood for all this time has been that strain of conservatism. Uh, conservat- uh, conservatism. Did I say that right? Conservat- conservatism? I don't know. Yeah, conservatism. Moving slowly enough, right, and not implementing any radical changes. And I think that, that that is something fundamentally different about the identity of the GOP today, whereas uh, with the Democratic Party, I also see ma- like massive changes, but n- nothing so central to its core identity. And I just I don't think that that's something that a lot of people have picked up yet, but I think it's coming. Yeah, no, that's fair, but we're on a bit of a tangent because it was, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, because I know you've spent a lot of time looking at COVID and you actually, one of the first reports that we published on Perch Perspectives, you you were the, the guy who spearheaded the the COVID-19 report that we have on our website at perchperspectives.com. What, what do you think about, you know, what were you thinking about COVID when it first started and when you wrote that report back in April and how has your thinking evolved now or changed now? Is there anything in particular that stands out that you feel like you had gotten wrong and wish you could get back or have things developed generally along the path that you were expecting once we kind of got to April and May? How are you feeling about your initial analysis of COVID? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, the U.S. has performed so much worse than I ever could have imagined that I think some of the conclusions that I drew in that paper um, aren't maybe aren't necessarily incorrect, but just overshadowed by other things that have happened since then. Mm. Um, it seems like China has been able to very forcefully lock down parts of the country when necessary, and you know it's been able to do so in part because it's an authoritarian power. And at the time, I, I anticipated that with a lot of the opposition that, that that was already occurring, uh, that was already going on in different parts of China, you saw protests over the last couple of years and issues related to the smog in Beijing, that this would be another grain to the pile of sand in that direction where people would were just not going to be willing to tolerate the fact that the Chinese government had encouraged all of these mass gatherings during the, the Chinese New Year when they already knew about COVID. Um, I mean... Compare that to how the U.S. performed. I I don't know how how upset uh, the average Chinese person is going to be about their government's performance relative to what's gone on in other parts of the world. I don't know. Um, I, I I recently, as part of a final project in grad school, looked at some COVID numbers in California specifically, and this is this is a bit of a tangent, but just because I've been deep in them lately, something interesting that I I, I found is that we looked at. Um, movement data as collected by Google and anonymized. And so it's like all GPS geolocation data and said, okay, based on people's movement, how has COVID transmission changed in California? And coincidentally, there's, there's a really high correlation between increased movement in parks and new COVID transmission seven to 14 days later, which is strange because you'd think it'd be a low risk scenario and outside and um, and it doesn't mean that one is causing the other. These are just descriptive uh, figures. But 
that to me says that, you know, at least within California, there may be some justification to shutting down things like playgrounds. Maybe that is uh, a transmission mechanism. So I, that, that's how my perspective compared to the paper early in the year has changed and some of the more recent stuff I've been working on. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I, when, when COVID originally happened, I was describing it as an accelerant and I, I still feel like it was an accelerant. I, I don't think it's necessarily changed anything in a fundamental way, but I do think it's accelerated a lot of trends and issues that were already happening and questions that might've taken, you know, three years or five years to emerge, emerged much quicker because, you know, supply chains really did shut down or because, you know, U.S.-China relations really couldn't improve once both sides were blaming each other for things. Uh, the EU really did have to come together to pass um, stimulus and rescue packages um, and all sorts of other things in a way that they probably wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had to so quickly if COVID hadn't been a thing. So that's still how I think about COVID in general. Um, zooming back out, Xander, is there anything else you feel like um, you want to call out that happened in the in 2020 as sort of major geopolitical events we'll look back on. I have a few on on my list, but I wonder if there's any that stick out in your mind before we we turn our gaze to the future a little bit. The ones that came immediately to mind we've actually already touched on. There were some of the ones in the Eastern Med and Turkey and Libya, and and then of course some of the things we just talked about on China. So let's turn to your list. Yeah, just a couple. We don't have to to go through them all in in any depth, but um, I think the the recent civil war in Ethiopia that was not something that I was expecting quite in that way this year, and the way that Abiy Ahmed's government has really gone from being you know media darling, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for making peace with Eritrea to you know what was really a grisly civil war. We're we're not even sure you know what the casualty numbers on the ground are. But I mean, that's the big regional power in East Africa. And I think East Africa is going to become increasingly important in the future. And, and that's one spot that I wasn't quite expecting that I've had a close eye on. Um, I think when you also look in Africa, just look across the way to Nigeria and the NSARS protests. I don't know if that's going to make, if that's going to make major change in the future. Um, but that's just an example of, of the sorts of unrest I think we're going to see going into 2021, where it's that mix of you know, a country whose government is dependent on energy prices and there's inflation and there's higher food prices and there's multiple ethnic groups and multiple tribes that are not agreeing on political issues. I, I feel like Nigeria is a little bit of foreshadowing of what we might see in the fallout, some of the political fallout of COVID-19 in the world. And then I think I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't call out, you know, we had a record-breaking season uh, for hurricanes in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm somebody who uh, I sort of, you know, make my way back and forth between Austin and New Orleans. I'm spending more of my time in New Orleans these days, and it's it's become deeply personal for me in a way that it wasn't before. Um, but I just I just think we're going to see more of that. The waters in the Gulf are warmer. Um, that causes, and we saw it over and over and over again this season, that caused storms that people thought were going to be Cat 1s and Cat 2s. You know, they would quickly accelerate into Category 4s. Um, and it wasn't just you know, Texas and Louisiana, but I mean, large swaths of Central America still going to be dealing with the fallout of some of these storms for years in the future. And again, I, I think that's just foreshadowing for, and I'm, I, I'm remiss if I didn't talk about, you know, what was happening for storms in, um, in the Pacific as well. I mean, Korea got pounded, the Philippines got pounded. Um, a lot of these countries were dealing with storms that unfortunately, I don't think it's an aberration. I think as we get 
further into the future, you're going to see more of these intense weather events happening. And in that sense, it feels like we crossed some kind of climate Rubicon in 2020. I, I don't know if you feel that way. It might just be because I'm here in New Orleans and, and having to batten down the hatches so often. I mean, it, it is a testament to the intensity of this year that it didn't even occur to me to mention the hurricanes or the fires that happened in my own state. Mm. Some some of the largest fires that have ever happened in California. I mean, there was, there was a whole month where the air quality here was so bad that uh, we were advised to just not go outside at all. And that includes walking your dog, which is, you know, one of the few, thing, few things you can do, at least in quarantine. Um, <laughs> I agree. I think, you know, it's, there's been so much controversy over, over the idea of climate change over the last five years, 10 years, 15 years. And we are now currently observing many of the, the events that were predicted by models. And usually, you know, if you're working from an, an empirical standpoint, you make predictions and then see if they happen, right? And if they don't, then your theory is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, it was bad here in California in August and September. The sky turned red, um, not just in California, but my, my mother who lives in Las Vegas shot me a, uh, sent me a photo back in September of the sky turning red there too from the fires in California. And it just, it, it, it seems like there is now going to be a fire season every year with all of these weird things that we've never had before, fire tornadoes, like what? It sounds like something out of a Philip K. Dick novel, right? It doesn't, it almost doesn't make any sense, but I I do think that climate change is going to be the inescapable element of all geopolitics in the next 50 years. Why? Because geopolitics is the aggregation of geography and politics, and geography is intimately tied to the climate. Geography determines climate, and in certain areas of the world, climate determines geography, as in the Arctic, right? So there's, there's no getting away. There's no getting away from the fact that climate change is going to impact how nations interact with each other in the years to come. Yeah. When, I mean, before COVID, when I used to be on the speaker circuit and I would be giving presentations at conferences or at corporate events and stuff, one of my one of the first maps I always show is I, I sort of have a succession of three maps. I have a map of you know, where water scarcity and desertification is happening in the world. The next map is where agricultural yields are uh, projected to go down because of climate change and temperature changes. And then the third one is where is the population growing? Um, and all you know those those maps, all of the areas where population is growing, where agricultural yields are going down, where water is scarce, and where land is degrading, they're all in the same areas. We're talking about Southeast Asia. We're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa. To a limited extent, we're talking about portions of Latin America. Um, th- those are the real places where that stuff is happening. And that's not the sort of thing that I think we're going to see happen on like a year time basis. For all we know, next year might be a very mild year. Um, but when you start zooming out and you start looking at that 5, 10, 20 year time horizon, I think you're right. I think this is really the major issue. And I think one of the reasons it's so hard for us to wrap our brains around it as societies and as governments is, you know, it's like it's like the, the frog that's boiling in the water. If, if you just slowly turn up the temperature, you really don't realize what's happening to you. And I, I worry that that's, that's going to happen. And I think you're exactly right. Like if, if the geography is changing, you can bet the geopolitics is going to change along with it. Coincidentally, I, I heard recently that if you gradually increase the water temperature and try to boil a frog, it'll just jump out. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope that we're smarter than frogs. <laughs> Which after this year, I'm not sure we are, Xander. I'm not sure we I, can make that case. I don't know either, man. Um, I, I want to come back to Ethiopia real quick because- yeah, yeah. 
something you said earlier was you saw COVID as as an accelerant and continue to. And as, as I understand the situation on the ground in Ethiopia, part of the reason it went from let's hold hands and get a Nobel Peace Prize to civil war again, possibly, has to do with a regional election that was postponed by the federal government because of COVID. So in this case, the, the prevalence of the pandemic of, of this damned virus seemed to not just accelerate a trend because if, if the 2019 trend in Ethiopia and Eritrea was accelerated, it'd be more peace more quickly, right? But now it seems to have gone the other direction. So do you think that in the case of Ethiopia and perhaps in other places in the world, and that's where I want to extend the, the question to you, do you feel like COVID has actually turned the direction of historical developments? Yeah. Well, Ethiopia, again, I think it's an accelerant because like Abby had a, had a vision and still has a dream of a more federalized, unified Ethiopia. Um, and, and that's what all of his policies are geared towards. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, he wants to electrify all of Ethiopia and connect it with infrastructure. Um, when you think about his politics, when you think about him making peace with Eritrea, it's all about forming a more coherent Ethiopia. And that's not really something that's ever happened in history because, you know, it's, it's, I think it's since the pharaohs has there been like a unified Ethiopian state. Not that, not that there wasn't a state there, but that was able to project power, that was able to really, you know, make change on the ground in East Africa the way that Ethiopia can now if it does unite. I think everything Abby was doing was about driving towards that. And I think that COVID um, in some ways accelerated that push. The, the thing with, with Abby is we have to start asking whether the ends justify the means for him. Because it's one thing to postpone an election because of COVID-19 disruptions. Um, it's quite another thing to, to postpone it indefinitely and not to set a date, even if you have to change it, but to just not even set a date in the future. That begins to make me doubt your intentions. And that's really what happened in Ethiopia. But the larger issue there is that, you know, Abby was, has this project. And for understandable reasons, you know, you have... Um, parts of Ethiopia that don't have that vision. They want their autonomy. Some of them even want their independence. And in that sense, COVID was kind of accelerating things. Um, I'm not sure that there was that there's any country where things changed irrevocably because of COVID. I think the the most important thing for me on a geopolitical level that that COVID did was it took away the off-ramps for US-China negotiation. I think for me, that's the thing that it really did. I, I wouldn't have bet that the U.S. and China were going to come to a better understanding and reach a phase two trade deal or even reach a broader understanding about their bilateral relationship. But I think COVID took away any chance that there was of that happening and it locked it into place. Um, I think, well, maybe the other one to talk about is the European Union, um, because I think the challenge posed by COVID-19 to the European Union really did bring France and Germany together in a way that they might not have been brought together, especially in Angela Merkel's sort of lame duck year. Sure. Um, so, and I think in that sense, it really did change the future course of the European Union. I was already a little more bullish on the European Union becoming more unified, but I think that need for, and, and that waking up to how powerful China was and how they were caught in the middle of this trade war and Trump was going after them as well. I, th I think that all of that together has created a new political dynamic in the European Union a lot quicker than I thought it might get created. So I, I guess the EU is where I would answer your question. That makes sense. Yeah. It really seems like 
despite many challenges, the EU has found ways to, I won't say overcome its diversity, but find ways to cooperate in, in, in ways that may have been unanticipated before COVID. So I, I'd agree with that assessment. Yeah, and I, I think the way, it's not some utopian rah-rah, let's all sing kumbaya thing. It, it's literally, I think the forces that are threatening the EU from the outside, whether it's China or Russia or COVID-19 or supply chains or any of these other things, I think the forces that are threatening European countries from the outside have become more intense than the differences between European countries on the inside. And maybe that will flip at some point. Maybe those differences will come back. We've certainly seen with Hungary and Poland, those differences are still there. I'm just making the case that you know, maybe COVID tipped the scale so that those external threats are, are a bigger issue for the EU. And when the external threats are a bigger issue, you know, um, allies can make strange bell- make, can make strange bedfellows sometimes, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's, I could shoot the shit with you about the past all the time, Xander, but let's, let's challenge ourselves to look a little bit further into the future. I ambushed you a little bit with this question. So I'm going to throw out sort of the two things that I'm thinking about right now. And I've got a couple others that we can talk about. Um, and I, this is not my sort of final endpoint. This is, this conversation is very much, I'm hoping is going to help me refine some of what I'm thinking too. It's just sort of the first stuff on the page. Um, but I wanted to say, I'm, I'm worried about a couple things. I'm going to start with this. I'm going to read you a list of countries that have important elections upcoming this year um, that I think also speak to deep, um, deep political transitions that are happening in these countries or areas. Um, Scotland is having legislative elections. We'll have to see what happens with Brexit. Iran is going to have presidential elections. Japan is going to have national elections. Uh, Mexico is going to have major um, legislative elections that will probably determine the future course of whether AMLO decides to stick around for a long time. I think he's even, no, I'm not even think he's trying to make sure that there's a constitutional amendment so that there can be a referendum on his leadership where they could technically vote him out. And if they don't, he could use that as an excuse to do, to do more. And we were just talking about it. Ethiopia has elections going forward. There's a, there's a bunch of others, but those ones in particular all struck, struck me for different reasons. And we can, if you want to talk about some of those countries, we can. And then the other one that I just wanted to bring up was I'm really worried about food insecurity in the world ahead. I'm not really worried that you and I aren't going to be able to go to the store and get what we want. I don't think this is going to affect the developed world that much, um, but I'm worried about higher food prices in general. Um, and you're already starting to see some of this bubble up. Um, Russia has already set export quotas for wheat next year because they're worried about shortages and they want to make sure that they have enough for their population before they start exporting. There's already signs of some pretty intense drought in places in Latin America where a lot of agricultural production is concentrated. Um, And when you start thinking about some of the supply chain disruptions from COVID and the fact that I think we're at least a couple months before some realm of normalcy returns, I'm worried about higher food prices and food insecurity. And I'm worried about that specifically because, you know, in, in the 10 years that I've been doing this kind of risk analysis, food insecurity is the best leading indicator I can find for political risk. Look at any major sort of civil conflict or interstate conflict. You can almost always find some kind of precursor where food insecurity was the problem. Arab Spring, you know, a vegetable salesman in Tunisia, uh, you know, drought in Syria, you know, the Arab Spring is the answer there. Uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, I mean, all these places, I I don't need to go through them all, but that's why I'm so hyper-focused on that and why things like wheat export quotas out of Russia already planned and already announced, you know, in the last week or two scare me. So so those are the two sort of major things I'm looking at. What does any of that 
strike home with you? Or are there others you think that I've missed that you want to throw on the table? I think it's a good sampling. For the sake of conversation right now, I would suggest we avoid Iran, not because it's not important, important but just because their electoral system is so complicated just to provide yeah. the context necessary in this podcast. Like, I feel feel like we'd have to do a whole show on how the you know the Guardian Council relates to the Supreme Council relates to the, the blah, blah blah blah, and and so elections are are its own thing in Iran. Um, the, what you said about Scotland draws my attention. What you said about the uh, food insecurity bit, and and therefore East Africa draws my attention. Scotland's particularly interesting to me because they had a referendum on on leaving six years ago, and and their circumstances have changed so substantially since the Brexit vote a couple of years ago. Not to mention COVID this year. So, I think maybe talking a little bit about how that could impact the future of the EU, given the moves towards coherency that we've seen, or we can talk about the uh, locust swarms early in the year and all of these issues surrounding food insecurity, which frankly may have a greater impact globally. I know that they hit Kenya. To what degree did the, the did the swarms hit Ethiopia, and what other drivers of food insecurity are we seeing right now? Yeah, so let's just take the Scotland bit for a second, and, and we'll yeah. come back to the the food insecurity bit. Um, and we're recording this. It's uh, this will publish in a week. It's it's Monday, December twenty first, right now. So I am sure there are going to be more developments in the never ending Brexit melodrama soap opera that's been happening. Um, so we we won't be a hundred percent up to date when this publishes, probably. Um, but a lot of this will depend on how things go between the UK and the European Union and as Brexit negotiations go forward. Um, if the UK has a hard Brexit, if they leave the European Union without a deal in place, um, I think the risks for S- Scotland pushing for independence and even holding an illegal referendum, if the British government doesn't let them hold a legal referendum, I think it's sky high. I, I have a hard time imagining a future in which the current political relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK holds if there's a hard Brexit. Now, that fact is why I don't think there's going to be a hard Brexit. I think Boris might take it down right to the very last minute, but I don't think that Boris Johnson wants to be the last prime minister of the United Kingdom. I just don't think that's in the cards for him. And I think that he will make whatever deal is on the table and he'll try to make it as good as possible with the best brinksmanship he can, but I think he'll take the deal. And in that case, that's why those elections are so interesting to me because they're going to be in some ways a referendum on whether Scotland wants to remain. And if the Scottish Nationalist Party gets a sizable, and it would have to be pretty sizable, but polls seem to suggest that you know support for independence is increasing, the SNP is looking good in polls. If they pull down impressive majorities in those elections, I'd be pretty worried um, anyway, even if there is um, some kind of EU um, UK deal on Brexit, I'd be pretty worried about what that's going to do um, to the inter- internal workings of the UK. All right. And food insecurity? The UN is already projecting there's going to be more locusts. And again, locusts goes back to climate change. Like the reason there were locusts in East Africa was because in 2018 and 2019, you had abnormally warm temperatures and an abnormally wet, rainy system from cyclones that were coming in from from the Indo-Pacific. And that's what created the conditions for those locust swarms. Uh, It looks like that's gearing up to happen again. Because of the timing of some of these things, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, although it definitely hit countries like Ethiopia, like Kenya, Somalia. Um, the countries that were worse affected were the ones that don't normally deal with locust swarms. Um, so they didn't have the equipment that they needed on hand. And because of COVID-19 disruptions, they couldn't get that equipment really quickly. Um, so expect to be reading more about locusts in general in the future. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, East Africa is just one area that we have to worry about. Um, it, it stretches all the way. I mean, locusts made it as far as Pakistan and India. They even wow. made their way up into China. Now, they didn't cause serious problems, and they were able to control them in those countries. But again, it's, it's just an example of the types of disruptions that we're talking about. And if you have, say, drought in Latin America that drives down yields, if Russia doesn't have a great yield and they have export quotas, um, you know, just throw a couple more export, export quotas in there if people are freaking out about COVID-19. Um, and you, you have a recipe, not for drastic shortages again, but just for higher prices. And if prices are going to go up, then you're going to get panic. And then you get some of the you know, folks who are not willing to protest something might be willing to protest. Or folks who might not have been willing to risk their life um, for whatever reason might be willing to because they just don't simply have access access to food. Those are the types of issues that I think we need to be keeping an eye on, especially in places like um, you know, East Africa, West Africa, where there are these, these genuine concerns with political governance, even in Latin America as well. I mean, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen major political unrest in, I mean, let's go down the list. There's been major mm. political unrest in Argentina, Chile, Bolivia. Um, you know, Brazil has is a basket case when it comes to COVID, and and they're still very at odds with each other. I mean, Peru. I mean, Peru's had what three presidents in the last month? I think um, all all of this stuff is interconnected, and and I think that you know we're we're able to see in a really intense way some of the areas where these pressures are going to manifest the most, and you just have to dig down really deeply into each one of these countries and figure out whether they have the resilience to to manage it going forward or whether they don't. So. Maybe as a as a concluding thought here, then Jacob, how do you think these trends, which will begin to manifest in twenty twenty one, but certainly for the climate change issues, continue to manifest for many years to come? How is that going to impact the business environment for you know companies that may have international business, be it import export or have supply chain operations upstream that they need in order to sell wherever? How is that going to change their strategic logic? Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, we can speak about it on a country by country basis. And the the Mercosur EU free trade agreement is probably the best example of this. The EU, uh, led by really France, doesn't want to go ahead with that free trade agreement unless Brazil commits to doing more on climate change, on climate change, specifically in the Amazon. Um, so that's a that's a major deal. Like if Mercosur and the EU uh, sign that free trade agreement, that's a major potential trading block, economic block, the potentials for that to grow into a into some kind of political uh, relationship. There's a lot there, and that's all hinging on this issue of climate change in Brazil. Um, I also think when we're talking about climate change, um, you have to think about the fact that, you know, we've been talking a lot about 5G technology this year, but I think climate change technology is going to be one of those things that becomes a competition ground between different countries. And a lot of the materials and resources you need for some of these advanced um, climate change technologies, and you probably know this better than me, um, you, know, you need things like lithium for batteries, and you need things like cobalt. And when you look at where what countries have these resources, that's countries like Argentina, it's countries like um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and there's a reason that a country like China just announced $4 billion worth of investment in building Argentina railroads because they want that Argentine lithium. <laughs> they want access to some other stuff in Argentina too, but it's it's pretty transparent. Uh, same thing with all the countries that are active in a lot of these, these places around the world that people maybe haven't heard of. Um, but it's this kind of new approach to, I don't know what you want to call it. Do you want to call it neocolonialism or 
neo-mercantilism. I, I don't have a pretentious sounding name for it yet, but I do think that need for some of these materials that are crucial to climate change technologies is going to lead to intense competition for securing access to these resources. And a lot of those relationships are going to look vaguely imperial, um, whether it's you know a country like China building infrastructure and and you know providing infrastructure so, so that it gets a better political relationship with that host country, or whether the U.S. is going to threaten trade sanctions, or whether the U.S. is going to join rejoin the TPP or try and conclude new free trade agreements so that it can have access to some of these important materials in these countries, whether it's about countries like the U.S. and Australia um, rebuilding their own um, you know, ability to produce rare earth elements. Um, I think all that stuff is on the table this year, and it's going to be it's going to be forward in a way that it wasn't necessarily in 2020. I think that's right, and I think regardless of what you want to call it, just just because colonialism refers to a specific period in history that has a lot of associations with it, set that aside for a moment. Empirically, what you're going to see in a lot of countries uh, where there are precious resources is more active foreign government involvement, especially in in the big players that you've already just talked about. That's going to be inescapable. And understanding what their motivations are is going to be absolutely critical if you want to earn a profit operating in these places. Yeah. And and just on that, I mean, and, and this kind of relates back to our COVID conversation as well. Like, I really do think that for this phase of globalization, I think we've reached a high watermark. I think things are going to start receding now. And that doesn't mean necessarily that the world is going to fall apart overnight. It just means that, um, you know, before it was, it has to be as efficient as, po- as possible. Your, su- your supply chain needs to be as lean as possible. It's going to be about political relationships. Um, you know, you might be a company that sources something from one place. And if your government has a problem with that country's government, or um, if that country is now caught between two competing powers, whether it's China in the US or Turkey and Russia or um, the EU and Turkey, like all, all these things are going to manifest in a business sense in a much more intense way. Um, and you just, you, you can't afford to be in the dark about that stuff. Now that's somewhat of a self-serving argument because obviously the thing we specialize on is political risk. So I guess the silver lining to that is also that periods of intense change like this, they're tremendous opportunities. And if you can be more activist rather than passive about anticipating some of these disruptions, anticipating some of these changes, you're not going to get it all right. But if you start that process now, if you start thinking through what potential risks there are to your supply chains, to your lines of business, you'll be ahead of your competitors, I think, at the end of the day. If you're a business operator that realizes these risks and wants to say, and yeah, this is clearly an advertisement, but contract a company like Pritch Perspectives to better understand how those developments are going to impact their bottom line, how would they do it? Well, they would just, they would send us a note at info at perchperspectives.com and they would say, Jacob, stop drinking Sapporo Light and please give me an (laughs) intense five page brief on how. Uh, you know, the drought in Argentina and China's investments there is going to affect my bottom line. That's that that that, that would be a good place to start. And then we can go from there. <laughs> Love it. Why don't we call it a day? We'll pick another we'll pick another uh, episode to maybe dig down more into some of the details of what's going on in in some of these parts of the world that we outlined. I, I think Ethiopia is such an interesting place, but you know, as you mentioned, you get you and me on a, on a call with a with a glass of wine or a bottle of Sapporo Light, and we'll talk for eight hours. So we got to call it at some point. <laughs> All right. Well, Xander, thank you for taking time, and it's always good to talk to you, man. Stay safe. You too, man. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.